Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. I'm sure most of you know this, maybe not all of you do, but one of the other ministry opportunities I have is to serve as a professor with Crown College, one of our Alliance schools, and so I'm an online professor with them. Um, And I got a call two semesters ago from a student who was very concerned about something at the beginning of our journey together in the class. This is one of those students, the overachiever, the one who always has to have the highest marks and doesn't want anything to detract from the perfect grade. And one of his biggest concerns at the beginning of our journey through the class was this, that deep into the class in week six, uh, there was a collaborative, assi- a collaborative assignment, a group project. And he's one of those people who has had many experiences with such group projects. and. You just can't always rely on your classmates to do their work, to do their work on time, to do their work well, and he didn't want somebody else's shortcomings to detract from his grade, and so he said, Professor, what do I do? Because I'm usually the one who does all the work for the group so that I could get an A, and I'm worried that that's going to happen here in this class as well. Have you ever had these moments? When you had to rely on somebody else, when you're collaborating in a group, you're not just on a solo mission, And you're worried that perhaps you're going to carry most of the weight or that somebody is going to let you down as you work together. This was his concern. And to be honest, the church could feel like this at times, especially if you're one who serves often and in many ways throughout the church. And you just seem tired because there's so much to do and so few that actually participate. In fact, this is the status uh, of of kind of this is the universal joke in churches in America that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. That's not just our church, that's everywhere. That is, that is the, the thing that comes up at every pastoral gathering as we, we joke, but sadly, because it's a reality, that this is just the way it is, that so few do so much, and there are so many who don't do as much. And when we look at even the many different ways in our community and in our church over the last couple years where we've seen these kinds of frustrations. Here's at Alliance Men this past week, I found out from a different, a member from a different church that his church of 75 to 100 people who meet on a Sunday morning for the last 10 years has only had three people, the same three people, show up at every prayer meeting. Now, this church of 75 to 100 used to be a church of 200 before COVID. And even when it was 200, only three people, the same three people, showed up for a prayer meeting. There have been times that I've hosted an Alliance men's meeting, and I was literally the only person in the room, or I sat across from one other person in the room. There are many churches, ourselves included, who've lost people over the last two years because A lot of people found it more comfortable to sit at home and watch church on their computer or on their television instead of coming and being a part of this community. In every other aspect of their life, they've added back in all those things that perhaps for a time for COVID they withdrew from, but church is not one of those things they added back. 
And oddly enough, in my seven years here, I've even seen church leaders, those who showed incredible levels of commitment, who were doing good work and impacting the lives of others, just walk away, sometimes seemingly overnight. For instance, in the last seven years, we've had some youth workers just walk away from the entire church out of the blue. Uh, They went from full commitment to no commitment overnight. We had the same happen of an elder and a few deacons and even a deaconess. Full commitment to zero commitment, almost overnight. What on earth is going on? I, I hope this is disheartening for you too, because it's disheartening for me as I look at these things, and yet I know we're not the only church that faces these kinds of things. In fact, believe it or not, the Apostle Paul had some experiences like this in his day. I want to just share this with you. Uh, This is a comment in his closing of the letter to the Colossians, and he writes this. This is uh, Colossians 4.14. He says, Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. This is part of a longer list of those who are traveling with Paul, and as Paul's writing to a church with his companions around him, he sends a letter and he says, these people send their greetings, right? So we see this man Demas traveling with Paul, one of Paul's companions, on the mission together with Paul. And yet, here's what we see just a little time later as Paul's writing to Timothy while he's in prison. This is 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 10. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. What happened? Full commitment, traveling with Paul, watching God do amazing things, seeing numerous people come to faith in Jesus, seeing churches strengthen, seeing all kinds of amazing things. You've been with us as we've been reading Acts. Can you imagine being with Paul as he's on one of his missionary journeys and God's doing amazing things? And then one day just, yeah, that looks better. I'm going to go do that instead. And yet we see it happened, for even for Paul. And that wasn't even the only such instance. Over the past couple of weeks, we've followed Paul and Barnabas through what we commonly refer to as Paul's first missionary journey as he traveled out from Antioch throughout this region known as Galatia, and he's preaching the gospel. And yes, Jewish people are coming to faith in Jesus, but so are so many Gentiles. And they're celebrating this victory of how God is not only calling the Jews, but the Gentiles, and they're coming in droves, and what a wonderful thing. And yet, in our reading from the past few weeks, this one verse stood out. Acts 13, 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Now, Luke didn't provide us a whole lot of detail, so I didn't mention that in my sermon. There's so many questions, right? For instance, why did he leave? You know, did the whole team think it was best that he leave? We don't know. Did he have some noble purpose in leaving? Perhaps it was good that he left. Uh, We just don't know, based on that one verse that we visited in chapter 13. However, our passage today gives us a little more insight into what happened as John uh, left Paul and Barnabas in the middle of their missionary journey. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Acts chapter 15. And we're going to be in verse 36. Acts 15, starting in verse 36.
For those of you who don't have a Bible with you, it will also be up on the screen. Acts 15, starting in verse 36, says this. Some time later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So I want to draw our attention to a couple things here as we look at this text. So if you have it in front of you, please keep it open. Um, we see at the very beginning, first of all, a wonderful impulse that we see characteristic of Paul throughout his, throughout his letters, throughout the, uh, the book of Acts, and that's this, that he truly felt like a parent to a bunch of children as he has uh, preached the gospel, seen people come to faith in Jesus, and he wanted to nurture them. He wanted to disciple them. He wanted to shepherd them in the faith. He cared about them genuinely, and we see that's the case here as well. Instead of wanting to march off to a completely different area and proclaim the gospel, he wanted to go back to those new believers and make sure that they're being raised up right, to being trained in the way of the Lord to follow him and, and so that was his impulse. And Barnabas was on board with this too. The two of them were going to go together again to the region they were just in to do the work that God had called them to do, to make disciples, to nurture those disciples, bringing them to maturity. And yet we see that a conflict ensued here because we're finding out the details behind why John Mark left them. It wasn't that he had some other more important mission. It's not that Paul and Barnabas and John decided there was something better for him to do. Instead, he abandoned them, walking away from the mission and leaving his companions to hold the bag to carry on without him. Now, we don't know if it was temptation. We don't know if the work got too hard. We don't know if he didn't like the danger level that they were facing. But for whatever reason, he abandoned them. And because of that, Paul can't trust him. In fact, we see here in the text, he said uh, he did not think it was wise to take him with them because he had abandoned them. Can you imagine Paul and Barnabas setting off on another journey such as this? And there he goes again. Just when things got tough, John Mark bailed. And now we have to shoulder the responsibility alone. And we see this in our text. And because of it, it caused the falling out between two people who had served as partners throughout this very successful and celebrated missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas. The two were inseparable, as we've seen in the passages that we've been reading for the last several weeks. And yet now, over the matter of John Mark, these two are going their own separate ways to do their own separate mission work for the Lord. No longer a team, no longer a partnership. Why couldn't Paul just let it go? Why couldn't he just forgive and forget and move on? Well, he couldn't trust John Mark. He couldn't count on him to be reliable. And the work in which he was doing was of utmost importance. And, they, and success and failure in large part depends upon the people we have around us as we serve the Lord in such important ways. 
I've worked with two other pastors in my life. I've been in various different ministries, but I've worked in, on staff at two different churches, one in North Carolina and, of course, this one here. And so in those two times serving in those two churches, I've worked with two other pastors. One was a senior pastor in a church in which I served as the youth and young adult pastor for five years. And the other was Pastor Michael Covey. Raise your hand if you know and love Pastor Michael Covey. There it is. Um, you could probably tell I'm probably going to have some good things to say about Pastor Michael Covey, but I don't want to give that away just yet. I served with two other pastors. Let me tell you a little bit about the senior pastor and my relationship with him. He had it out for me from day one. And when I say day one, I mean the interview. He was pretty much saying in the interview that he did not want me for this position. And meanwhile, the only reason I progressed and eventually got the job was because of the elder and the board who interviewed me. But from day one, he had it out against, he had it out for me. He worked against me on many points, trying to see me fail so that he could easily see me removed from the position. Uh, he disagreed with me theologically, philosophically, methodologically, just about every way possible. We were on two completely different, not even two different pages, we were on two different planets. Uh, he tried to make me quit or get me fired consistently during my five years there. So I don't say this to disparage him. By the grace of God, I've been able to forgive him. But you can imagine how that worked out in terms of two men who served on a team whose purpose was to glorify God and make him known to other people. As you can imagine, I didn't really want to collaborate with him in ministry. I didn't trust him for counsel, even when important matters came up. I'd rather refer people outside of the church than to the pastor for further care. I didn't even trust him with prayer requests because somehow even confiding in him some needs in my family or in the church, somehow that always came back to bite me in the, in the backside. And so you can imagine this was a difficult ministry partnership. That ministry partnership was never going to work. The work, the ministry, the mission was too, too valuable and the team was dysfunctional from day one. Then there was Pastor Mike. We cared about each other, even when we provided honest and critical feedback to one another. He always looked out. He always looked out for me, always looked for ways to back me up, and I did the same for him. We trusted each other in areas of life and ministry. It's no wonder that for his four years here, we worked very well together in ministry. If you can't trust and rely on the people you serve with, it is a recipe for disaster. I don't care where you are and what context you're in, if you cannot trust and rely on the people that you serve with, it is a recipe for disaster. You know, Jesus once showed the Pharisees how ridiculous their accusation was against him. He was casting out demons, and they accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus said, this is ridiculous. Why would Satan cast out demons? He would be casting out his own minions. He would be standing in the way of his own plan. Any house divided against itself cannot stand. So that even that very accusation was utterly ridiculous. But that principle, a house divided against itself cannot stand, is important. And so we need to be on a team that is together. I think too often the church seems like a house divided 
like teammates working against each other, either actively through internal strife or even a lot of times, perhaps the majority of the time, through apathy, not being intentional about working together and the things that we're called in together. In the remainder of our time together, I want to paint a picture of what our life together as a church is supposed to look like. And this is, this, is relevant, this is relevant for any church I might be standing at the pulpit in today. But as I look out at my church family that I've had the privilege of being a part of for seven years, as we're embarking now on a new school year, coming back from the summer, people engaging again, it is my deep hope and prayer that we would embody this. So here's what, here's, here's what I want us to think of in terms of. Life together on mission for the glory of Christ. I'm going to ask you to repeat after me. Life together on mission for the glory of Christ. I want to say it one more time because I'm hoping you have this memorized by the end of today. Life together on mission for the glory of Christ. I think I'm going to talk to the governing board. This needs to be our motto as a church. This is what we're called to. We're called to do life together. We're called to do that on mission, and we're, do, we're called to do all those things for the glory of Christ. And this is what I want to spend the rest of our time together looking at. What does that look like? What am I calling all of us to? What does the Bible call us to? So let's start with the first one, life together. Here's what we're used to. How our, and by, by the way, when I say what we're used to, I mean how our culture has formed us. Not that there's anything particularly wrong with any one of us, but this is the way that all of us, and by all of us, I mean all American Christians, it seems, as we've just been, we've just been formed by this culture, and sadly, those things are detrimental to the health and the life of the church, and we bring them in. So here's, here's what we're used to, how our culture has formed us. We're independent, right? As a people, think of yourself. We want to go it alone. We don't want to ask for help. We, we'd rather just take charge and go do it. We're independent. Here's another one. We compartmentalize areas of our life. Okay, this is church. This is family. This is work. This is me and my friends. This is my hobbies. And we just compartmentalize everything. We choose what we participate in, and we choose our level of participation. But here's how that has hurt the modern American church, and I'm going to go ahead and say Belgrade Alliance Church, too. We have a hard time truly understanding what Christian community is supposed to look like. You, know, you, ever, you, ever, you ever hear somebody say, you know, we want to get back to like an, an Acts 2 church. We want, we want to be back more like a, like a New Testament church. Well, even those comments indicate that there's clearly a disconnect between what we see in Scripture and what we see today, and a lot of that is culturally formed, and just those things we mentioned, it gives us a hard time truly understanding what Christian community is even supposed to look like. We see church as one of the many things that we're involved with instead of the most important thing that we're a part of. We see it as one of many things we're involved with instead of the most important thing we're part of. Our participation levels are often dependent on how much we're getting out of the experience. Why do people leave the church? Well, probably the number one reason. There's many reasons. Sometimes people are offended at something. Sometimes people move. 
What's the number one reason people leave the church? I'm not getting enough enjoyment out of it. The people I like to spend time with aren't there anymore. It always comes down to that, or at least most often. Our participation levels are often dependent on how much we're getting out of the experience. The problem is that that's not the picture that the Bible paints for the church. And I know this is a hard word, but we need to understand what the Bible does say about the church. And so I want to paint one picture, one of the metaphors that the Bible uses for the church. And we find this in 1 Corinthians 12. It'll be up on the screen. The church, I'll go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. The church is a body. So before we even read this passage, I want you to take a look. We joke all the time, right? If I had to get rid of a part of my body, which part would Kevin get rid of? But let's be honest, if I took a giant machete and cut that part of me off, I'd bleed out. I'd lose some other things inside. It's all connected. It all works together, right? We can't just go lopping off parts of our body we don't like. In fact, uh, oh, man, I'm going to digress here, but just recently, you know how Facebook likes to pop things up on the screen? It's like things that they think you're interested in, and I'm like, why on earth did you put that on there? One of them was uh, the terrible... Uh, conclusions for cosmetic surgery and people who just keep going back for more and more and more because they're never happy and they look grotesque and disfigured right because you can't just go lopping off and changing parts of your body your body's important and this is one of the metaphors that they that the Bible uses to describe who we are as the church all of us parts of this body here's what Paul writes he says just as a body though one has many parts but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with a special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body. But that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. This is not some deep metaphysical thing he's talking about, how you know, this mystical union between you and Christ. Yes, there are many places that talk about us being in Christ and Christ being in the Father, just talking about our relationship with God. But what is he talking about here? That in Christ, we are knit together as a body, one body, not a bunch of bodies meeting in a room. 
and therefore we are entirely dependent under God in one another. If one of us suffers, we all suffer. If one disappears, we all feel the loss or we're all not able to finish or complete the task God has called us to as effectively. We need every single person in the church. We are one body. So what does it look like to be, for the church to be a body? What does that even look like? There's a great passage of scripture for those who say, I wanna be, be part of an Acts 2 church. Well, let's, talk, look what it, let's look at what it means to be an Acts 2 church. When somebody says that, here's what they're talking about. There's a passage in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, and it'll be up on the screen. Here's what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Raise your hand if you're a list maker. You know, you're going away on a trip, you got a packing list. You, get, you have a to-do list sitting on your desk. I'm a list maker. I like lists. I hope this is helpful for you. So we just read a paragraph, and it was chock full of good stuff. So I'm going to break it down for you on a list. Here's what doing life together looks like, according to this passage. This is what the early church was doing, that so many in our midst want to get back to what I want to get back to right here in Belglade Alliance Church. Here's what, here's what it looks like. Devoted to the scriptures together. Not you go have your quiet time, you go do your thing with the Lord, I do my thing with the Lord, and none of that ever connects. Together, devoted to the scriptures. Devoted to fellowship with each other. Not do it once in a while. Devoted to it. Devoted to prayer together and for each other amazed at the work of God in our midst together, focused on that which we all have in common and not separated by our differences. Guess what? Early church had a ton of differences. We read about some of their differences. Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews, uh, you know, rich and poor, city people and rural people up in uh, the Galilee, all kinds of people. And then when you add the Gentiles into the mix, it got even crazier. And yet, they had everything in common, it says, because they focused on that which they did. Willing to sacrifice for one another, to put one another first, to meet often, regularly. In fact, they were meeting daily because that's how important it is to live life together. Being a part of each other's lives outside of the building of the church or the temple courts as they met, even in homes being glad and sincere together, praising God together, celebrating people coming to faith in Christ together. This is what we just read. This is what we need to be about here together. This is what it looks like to live life together. Life together on mission for the glory of Christ. Life together. Life together. On mission for the glory of Christ. Very good. So let's talk about what it means to be on mission. 
There's something important to remember about the fact that we are together on mission. We have to remember that, which is to say that we must be moving forward. We must be looking outside. We're not satisfied with things staying as they are. We're on mission. We're not complacent. I have this conversation all the time, by the way, with other pastors, with just other people in general, when they find out I'm a pastor. Someone will ask, well, how many people attend your church? And I'll respond, well, we're a small church, you know. In the peak times, we're somewhere between 35 and 40. And, you know, we rarely hit 40, but I like to boast just a little bit more. Speaking out in faith, right? I want 40. Um, We have about 35 to 40 on Sunday. They'll say something like, oh, I love small churches. Everyone knows everyone. It's nice to experience the tight-knit fellowship. Raise your hand if you do love those aspects about us. I love tight-knit fellowship. I love knowing the names of everybody in here. Listen, there's nothing wrong with that, right? We, that's one of the things I enjoy about our small church. And I'm definitely not getting to the... I'm not saying that all churches need to be big churches. Uh, that's not where we're going with this. But here's the thing. Those things that we like about small churches are easily a slippery slope into complacency, okay? Those things may be true, but they're also a potential danger because we could love things just as they are and therefore we could lose sight of the mission and, be, and become an impotent church living in disobedience to the call that Christ has on us to be on mission. Again, living together, that's good, we got that. But we also need to be on mission So Jesus himself says this in a passage you better not be unfamiliar with. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In other words, this was his marching orders before sending back to the Father. He's talking to the church. He's talking to his believers, the people who are assembled in his name. And he says, go and make disciples. And this is the legacy. This is the mission that every generation of Christians inherits, that every local church inherits. We need to be people who are inviting other people to know Jesus. And so we can't be so caught up in how the things we like about our small community that we're afraid of it changing by bringing other people to Jesus and into our church. The church is meant to multiply. In fact, talking about Paul, one of the things he instructed Timothy, who he trained up, is this in 2 Timothy 2.2. He says, "...in the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses..." It trusts the reliable people who will also be, be qualified to teach others. The, the church is exponential, is multiplying. It's supposed to be moving forward. More people coming to faith, more people being discipled, those disciples going out and making more disciples and being, making more disciples and making more disciples, and we're not really doing this well. And so we need to take stock of that. What does it look like to do that? What does it look like to do that well? It means that we start taking ownership for the lostness in our community. Raise your hand if you know somebody, anybody who is not a Christian. Okay. If you didn't raise your hand, get to know the people around you. I guarantee you there are non-Christians in your midst. We know people, and we need to take ownership for the lostness in our community. It means that we allow ourselves, our hearts, to be stirred by the very real fate of those around us who don't know Jesus. 
If they died today, what does that mean for them and do I care? That's what we're asking here. It means we start making progress with the gospel, right? We just sang it, okay? So here's, here's, what do you call yourself if you say something but it's not true? I'll let you fill that blank in in your head. Hypocrite, liar, I heard two things, right? We just sang, I love to tell the story. When was the last time you told the story? But we just sang that we love to do it. Are we doing it? Again, not meant to guilt trip. The whole point of this is that it would speak to us and we would allow God to make changes where changes are necessary. It means we need to start making progress with the gospel. Maybe we need to start some new friendships with non-Christians. Maybe we need to create moments to share who God is and what God has done in our lives. Maybe we invite people to church or to an event with other Christian believers. Maybe we give out a tract or a Bible and ultimately, we have got to give them multiple opportunities to hear and to respond to the gospel message. That because of our sin, we were divorced from God, and yet because of his love for us, he sent Jesus to come to die on the cross and to rise again from the dead so that we can have hope, so that we can have life, so that we can be reconciled to God because of our debt that he paid in full. We have to be able to give people multiple opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel. And remember that we do this together. How can we share the gospel together? How can we form a culture here of celebrating milestones on the path toward leading others to Jesus? How will we celebrate together every new believer who comes to faith in Christ through our community, through our church? How will we commit to walk alongside new believers in our midst? Brothers and sisters, we're called to be on mission. Life together on mission for the glory of Christ. Life together on mission for the glory of Christ. So let's talk for just a few moments in closing on what I mean by for the glory of Christ. If we're not living life together, if we're not living on mission together, Please let us not deceive ourselves into thinking that we as a church are glorifying Christ. If we're not doing the things he's called us to do, if we're not, you know, spreading the word of what he sacrificed to make way for people to be reconciled to God, let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that we're glorifying Christ at all as a church here at Belgrade Alliance. That's a tough reality. As a pastor who's been here seven years, not a guy who walked in the front door for the first time and, hey, whatever happened before, that's not on me. I've been here seven years. I own this just as much as every other person in this room. But we need to, we need to own this. And we need to pray that the Lord would give us a course correction. We glorify Christ when we mirror him, when we image him well. We glorify Christ when we allow him to lead and direct his church. We glorify Christ when we allow him to influence the world around us through us. This is how we glorify Christ. Life together on mission for the glory of Christ. Life together on mission for the glory of Christ. Paul didn't want to work with John Mark because he had bailed on the team. He had bailed on the mission at the time. 
Paul needed people around him that he could rely on. The mission was just too big, too important for anything less. Friends, our mission is big. If you don't think our mission, our purpose, why we exist as a church right here in Belle Glade, right on this street, right in this neighborhood, if you don't think it's big, then we don't even belong here. There's no purpose for us being here if we do not see how big the task is that God has given us. We have a big, important mission around us. And we need you. You, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you. We need all of you. We need all of us. We need those who aren't here today who are part of our church family. We need every single one. We need all of you. And so when I say all of you, I do mean all of you in terms of every single last person, but I also mean all of you in the sense that don't just give us an hour a week. Don't even just give us two. We need everybody to be all in. Because if we're being honest, if we've read this at all, this is the most important thing. Because we'll have all of eternity to enjoy all those fun things in life. We'll have all of eternity to enjoy pleasure and work and, and, and just all the, all the good things. What are the things that ultimately matter now? Everybody else's eternal location. We need, need to take ownership of the mission. We need to be all in for it. We at Belglade Alliance Church need our members to be wholeheartedly committed to life together on mission for the glory of Christ. Can you commit to that?